Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to do a care plan that lumps together several procedures that we can do at the endo suite. And this is where we do colonoscopies, EGDs, ERCPs, really the main three that we do there. For the most part, at our facility, we do a MAC procedure for all three of these. A lot of places I know for the ERCP, we'll do a general but for the most part, we do max for all of these and we'll be in the lateral position, prone position for the RCP, et cetera. And so this is what we thought was an interesting talk to do just because a lot of times, from my experience, people think, oh, I'm just doing a MAC procedure. That's way easier than doing a general. But really, from what I've experienced, the MAC procedures can be the more difficult ones than doing a simple general because the general, once you get the patient to sleep, it really, for the most part, follows a certain trend of how you take care of the patient. Whereas the MAC procedure, there's so many variables that go into it, depending on how deep you're going to get the patient, whether you're going to be using narcotics, more Versed, more propofol, et cetera. There's just so many different ways you can approach it. And each patient responds differently. So really, from my experience, these procedures can be more difficult from that standpoint of how to anesthetize the patient correctly for these procedures. Many times, endosuites don't have an actual anesthesia machine in the room. Some of them do. It just depends on where you're practicing and honestly, probably how big of a facility you're at. So that'll be one thing that you want to pay attention to. So you start to think, okay, if this goes badly, what are going to be my rescue maneuvers or how am I going to manage this without an anesthesia machine here in the room? If you have one in there, that's great. You'll do your machine check just like normal. Otherwise, you'll definitely want to locate suction, make sure that's working appropriately then you're going to want to identify where you'll be pulling meds from. Many times they'll have a specific endo tray that will have medications for that procedure. And so you'll have a bunch of propofol. Uh, then you'll also have some rescue drugs in there as well. Many times though, your controlled substances will still be in a Pixis or an Omnicell or something. And so you'll want to locate that and get a plan in your mind for how you're going to set up for each patient and then these days really do go pretty quickly most of the time. So again, just kind of get in your mind how you're going to progress through the day and where everything is so that you have a clear plan and that you can uh, care for these patients well. So where we practice mostly, there's not an anesthesia machine in the actual room, but again, you'll make sure you have your monitors set up and that you know exactly where your emergency medications are, where your Ambu bag is, again, where your suction is. Make sure that's all set up and so you're prepared for all scenarios there. Oftentimes, the next thing that I'll do is look up my patients for the day. This is something that I'll do for cysto cases as well, but this just keeps my days organized. If I have a very busy day of back-to-back cases where you're not going to have a lot of time in between to look up the patients and have time turning over, things like that. So what I'll do is I'll get a piece of paper and I'll write down all of the cases. So if you have, let's say you have 10 cases in there for the day, I'll write down first their age. If they're male or female, I'll write down their ASA number. And then I'll write down any major comorbidities or medications that I might want to pay attention to. So if they have any kind of heart conditions, if they have AFib, if they have hypertension, if they have any kind of respiratory conditions, if they're a smoker, if they have asthma, COPD, sleep apnea, things like that, 
or if they have any kind of renal disease or anything else that's going to have an effect on maybe the elimination of your drugs, uh, things like that, you'll also want to pay attention to. This is not an all-encompassing list. This is just helpful as a patient's leaving, coming back in on the next case that you are able to turn around quickly and be able to have in your mind kind of what to expect and how you can formulate a plan pretty quickly. Like Cole said, if it's a MAC case, a lot of times these can be really touchy because every patient kind of responds differently to the drugs that you're giving. And so I think this is just one thing that you can do ahead of time. Again, with preparing your monitors and your emergency equipment, just prepare for your patients ahead of time so that during the actual day, you've got all of those things checked off. It'll help your day go a lot smoother. In terms of the actual anesthesia plan as these patients come in the room, as Tanner said, it's going to be very high turnover. So you may not have a lot of time after getting rid of the previous patient to get everything prepped exactly how you would if you were doing a normal day in the OR for your next patient, just because it is so fast. I know a lot of times that it's within three or four minutes of me getting back into the room, I already have the next patient wheeling in. And so when the patient comes in, this is typically my flow. I don't introduce myself if I did not have a chance to already out in the pre-op area, bring the patient in, get them hooked up to the monitors. Typically, I'll have these patients roll on the lateral side prior to getting them deeply asleep, just because it makes it a lot easier to get them positioned that way prior to putting them to sleep. And then there's a couple different modes of attack here. You can either do a higher versed plan with lower propofol. Other times you can do a higher propofol with lower versed. Most practitioners that I've worked with use age to determine this. If the patient is around that 70 marker overage where they refrain from using too much versed, but typically we'll give them one or two milligrams of versed and then start using propofol from there. You can either do it on a drip form or you can even just push it bolus pushes throughout the case. These cases typically are pretty short, depending on the surgeon that you're working with. And really here, the goal is to get them deep enough so that the initial start of the procedure is not too stimulating where they're going to be thrashing around, but you don't want them too deep where they're going to be obstructing and losing their airway. And so this is why it's obviously important to get that end title going right off the bat. And as you're getting them deeper with your medications at the beginning, just watch that end title, make sure you get that initial blood pressure, just like you would be doing it in the main OR. It's just a lot faster. So you just have to be on your game and just watching a lot of things at once. Once they start, from what I've found, typically if you're doing a colonoscopy, once they've gone all the way and reached the cecum, the stimulation drops dramatically at this point. On the way out is a lot less stimulating from what I've found than when they're going in. And so I can really come back on my propofol at this point. And I've even had some surgeons that are totally fine with the patient waking up and you just telling them, look at the screen here. We're just coming out. This is, this is the end of the procedure. You're doing great. And I've actually had patients that have woke up the best that way when we're still in the middle of the procedure on our way out. And it's just preference on the different positions on how you want to tackle that. And if the patient has any type of anxiety baseline things like that, that would differentiate how you'd want to do this. But for the most part, I don't give as much of my medication once we've reached the cecum, if we're doing a colonoscopy and the same thing for an EGD, the most stimulating part is the initial insertion of that probe. And after that, it's less stimulating. And again, these procedures are so short that you don't want to get them too deep where they're going to be taking forever to wake up in the post-operative environment. And so really here, there's a couple of different ways you can attack this. I have found from my experience, I like to do, if I have a young, healthy patient in the fifties or even younger who maybe is just coming for a routine screening and there's no nothing that I would warrant otherwise 
with a comorbidity, I like to work in about 50 of fentanyl right off the bat, a little bit of Versed, and then not a lot of propofol. That two of Versed and that 50 of fentanyl, sometimes even 100, goes a long way for most of those patients that are young and healthy. And I found that they've woke up the best, actually, compared to my patients where I've just done a lot of propofol for. But again, it's just kind of what you find with all these patients. I really encourage you to experiment a little bit. Do a couple of patients with high propofol, some with more Versed, maybe a little bit of fentanyl, and some kind of see how they wake up. Be asking the post-operative staff, how are these patients waking up? Are they staying long, et cetera? And kind of narrow down your game plan. Because like I said, there is so many different ways that you can do this, and it really is an art. And I think that's really interesting because I've typically not used any fentanyl for my cases and I've not had too many problems with them, but I've also given them a lot of propofol. So I think that's part of what's just fun about anesthesia is that you can figure out what you like to use best, what you think works better for patients in terms of wake up and other things. So like Cole said, try different techniques, try different things and see really what you like and kind of develop your own plan there. The main thing that you'll be really thinking about here is like Cole mentioned their respiratory drive. It does help that they're on their side. Oftentimes though, these patients will stop breathing or obstruct as you give them more and more medications. We know propofol is a respiratory depressant as well. And so oftentimes these patients can obstruct and then, you know, you're basically doing a massive jaw thrust the entire case, which can be very uncomfortable for you and also obviously for the patient. So less is more. I find that when they get into the room and they're getting over there on their side, I'll normally give them about 30 of propofol. And then if they're 50s healthy, I'll just push it the rest of the case. But if they are younger, if they're especially pediatrics, that's when I'll put it on a pump for sure, just because you are managing other things and their respiratory rate and drive is so important that for me, it's helpful to have my hands free and not have to worry about pushing the propofol. But I can just put that on a syringe pump and let that go. When you're talking about an EGD, this is something that is obviously more stimulating, I found. And as they are going into the esophagus, many times these patients will be coughing or um, kind of losing their drive to breathe. And so this is something that when they come in for an EGD and you have them over on their side, you'll often help get the bite block in. And at this point, I'm starting to give propofol and I go a little heavier with the propofol on these patients than I do with somebody that's just coming in for a colonoscopy. At this point, when you think that you have them deep enough, you can do a really good jaw thrust. And if they grimace or respond to your jaw thrust, then they're not deep enough. So I keep giving them propofol until I give them a really, really good jaw thrust and they're not reacting to that. At that point, you're ready for them to begin with the EGD. Again, like Cole mentioned, that first part is really, really stimulating. Once they get past that first part, then I can start titrating down the amount of medication that I'm giving. And usually this is a pretty quick procedure just in and out. And so while you want them deep enough to start the case, you don't want to continue them at that rate or keep giving them that high of dosages because that's where you'll get burned and they won't be waking up or won't be breathing very well for you. I will say that if they begin to cough, again, you can give them more propofol, but this is something that, especially with pediatrics, you're nervous about because the more that they're coughing and choking, this is when you could have a laryngospasm. And again, you don't have a secured airway. So this is where it's really important while you don't want to go too much and knock out their drive to breathe, and then you're at risk for um, you know, not ventilating. You also don't want to have them not be deep enough where the stimulation actually causes them to spasm or something like that. And then you're in a whole nother world of hurt. So 
Again, this is kind of something that you'll need to practice and get good at. This is why we say sometimes it's just so much simpler to put them asleep and do a general anesthetic. But this is something that I think is really an art and a skill that you need to develop your ability to look for indicators and understand when the patient is adequately sedated, but also able to breathe on their own. In terms of ERCPs, they're a little bit different than doing the colonoscopies or the EGDs. So like I said, at our facility, we typically do this under max still. These patients are going to be started more in the lateral position, get them to sleep the same ways that we would do for a colonoscopy or an EGD. And then we're going to rotate them typically almost prone, maybe a little slanted in the lateral position, but they're really flipped over. And so even more so, you got to be watching the ventilation and the respiratory drive on these patients because it's going to be a lot harder to get to if you're going to have a respiratory emergency. You don't want to be taking out their drive to breathe. But again, these patients are in the prone position now, and they're going to be a lot more difficult to keep asleep and they'll be stimulated during this procedure. And so it's a very fine balance. You also got to be paying attention to what you're doing with your medications and how that's going to affect the sphincter vodi, which if you remember, that can cause spasming if you give too much narcotic. So if we're giving fentanyl for this case, it can cause that. So you want to be backing off on the amount of narcotics you're going to be using. I typically have some glucagon prepared and have that ready in the room just because that can decrease the amount of spasm that occurs there at that sphincter if there is any that is occurring. And so these are some slight differences that you'll be at least in the back of your head compared to if you're doing a regular colonoscopy or an EGD. But for the most part, besides being prone, the procedure is really the same from tackling it from an anesthetic standpoint at our facility. Other facilities, you can do a general anesthetic plan. And this is really just a simple general. There's nothing too special about this. Again, like I said, you are going to be flipped over a little bit though. So you just got to be making sure that you're watching when you reposition the patient, how their tube is being manipulated listening to those breath sounds again after you reposition them just to make sure that you still have that tube where you want them to have it. For the most part, these endo days can be really quick, really fast cases, lots of cases. It's really good for time management. So get there early. Make sure you look up the patients ahead of time. Kind of like Tanner said, jot down those bullet points of what you may need. Some of the big plans for me that I look at, if I see any patient that has sleep apnea, any risk of having obstruction, I might be if they're young enough, more hesitant to use higher propofol, just because I don't want to take out their drive to breathe, I might err more on the side of using more Versed being in the case if they're younger. If they're older though, and I don't want to use Versed and they're still at really high risk of obstructing, I might use some ketamine even, and that would keep that airway open. But again, the problem is that you're going to increase the amount of secretions there. And so I've had some practitioners that wants me to give Robinol just right away with the ketamine, just to limit the amount of secretions, given that their heart rate is on the lower side to start. But that's a beautiful drug that I have found to use in these patients where they're at risk of obstruction. And again, you just want to find those different plans that work well for you. But again, just be able to manipulate depending on your patient, whether they're higher risk of obstruction, if they're elderly and you don't want to use a lot of Versed, et cetera. So that is the beauty of it. And that's why I love it is because even though it's quote unquote, just quick, easy mat cases, there's a lot of thinking that's involved and a lot of strategy. So uh, I really encourage you to take advantage of these days and don't think of it as just doing an endo day and not a lot of big anesthesia because it really is some important stuff to do because you're going to see a lot of different patients and you're going to have a lot of different ways that you can do this. 